Rodney, what's up today, man? Man, I want to talk about chlorella. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about chlorella, bro. Hey, specifically, I mean, it's very nutritious. It's good for you. You can get DHA and EPA, especially for you uh, vegans and vegetarians out there. Don't eat meat. It's one of the few places you can get it because it's where fish get it. But also, I want to I want to specifically talk about its benefits when you drink alcohol. Yeah. So it's one of the few things in nature proven to reduce or remove hangovers. I'm not telling you if you listen to us to go get drunk. What I'm saying is if you know you're about to have a few drinks, you got you got to take a lot of chlorella. It's something like 13 grams. I'll try and I'll find the um when we when we add this to an episode, I'll find the article from some British research institution university but like it's like 13 grams of chlorella at least a half an hour before your first drink and i'm telling you it's like magic it's like protective to your liver and you don't quite get as drunk and also in the morning you feel like money i've been told because i don't drink you know what i'm saying i don't drink more in common in the business of promoting binge drinking gonna get messed <laughs> up tonight. goodness gracious Ooh. <laughs> it's a sweet one Welcome to, or welcome back to, More In Common. This is our social experiment. See, everyone has a story that can help us learn from one another. And we bring people into this safe space that we have learned to create so we can learn about their stories and get into difficult topics that challenge us in conversation and ultimately how we think. And we have a lot of these conversations. And we're seeing a lot of similar threads through all of them. So what we're doing is breaking down these conversations to create a set of tools and a map that'll help you become a conversation boss so that you can be a catalyst for conversation in your day-to-day life. And of course, we have to remind you, check us out at moreincommonpod.com. And if you'd like to, because, you know, we do send out a bi-weekly mail to give updates, updates on episodes, updates on merchandise, or whatever else is going on, subscribe. You know, we have a we have a nice subscribe option on our website when you go visit. So throw your email in there, and uh, you know we'll we'll add you to the list and, and send you the biweekly mail. So, um, but yeah, moreincommonpod.com. Check us out. Now, we're coming off of an episode, Rodney, with Rachel Gorham. Yeah, we are. Yeah, tell me, tell me what like what what did that conversation do for you? Uh, so I want to first say this is our second time talking to her because we lost the first recording yeah and i think i don't want to compare them so i'm not going to i will say they were different uh the second one was a fantastic conversation and we got into some new things and learned i feel like we learned a lot about rachel that we didn't learn the first time i agree yeah and i am just kind of in awe of her journey from growing up how she grew up and just kind of working through fast food and putting herself through school nursing now she's a phd medical an md sorry um and her i mean she's on board she's fighting cancer she's she's overcome cancer multiple times 
She's raising a, an amazing daughter who inspired her to start a nonprofit that helps uh, the people that happen to be homeless in the Seattle and Washington areas. And it's just, and it's on it. And she's on the board of this and that. And it's just like, wow, she's an amazing human being. And she's, and she's nice and she cares and she drops the F bomb and she talks about vaginal hygiene. And it's just like, huh, she's just, she's just, I, that's all I can say. What do you, what do you got? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot in that, um, you know, I do, I do, wish we still had that first conversation because um it was a far more uncomfortable conversation oh, yes. just being that we talked for an hour and a half about vaginal care yeah. um given given the you know nonprofit that she she operates right um the healing hands project yep. so it we did learn more this time about her and uh, you know i thought it was it was a great conversation like you said not to compare uh, but just a very different dynamic in that first one but it overall like i'm with you and and i think some of the big takeaways i take is one how balanced she is i you know isaac newton is one of my historical heroes primarily because of his commitment to science and religion at the same time and its existence to have that balance and i love that she does that too she's like a modern representation of that balance that i don't think we see often enough um in today's day and age um I also like this. Wait a second. That's fascinating to me. I've known you all these yeah. years. And I had no clue that you a liked Sir Isaac Newton like that, nor liked him for those reasons. And you're not yeah. even a religious person. I'm not a religious or a spiritual person. person. Nope. Like, yeah. It's just it. It is a it is a cognitive balance that I think is so important that we can all strike. We just choose not to. And I think it's represented by Rachel. Like she just she choose like that is her life. And she finds it. We don't need to be so um, polarizing around certain issues just because we feel like it. And I, I just love that she represents that. And I also love that, uh, you know, it is, she just is believe in kids, like believe in them all. And she wasn't a good student, but yet here she is doing what she's doing today. She is a, she is a manifestation of the idea that you can't teach a fish to climb a tree. Right. Like she had to find her lane and she did and she attacked it with vigor and she's just an inspiration. Like she's an inspiration to to what you can overcome and what you can persevere through. Um, and, and she's just she's just so she's got a lot to her. And I just I'm ever inspired by all that she achieves. And I just learned a lot from her. And I loved that conversation. You can't you can't teach a, a fish to climb a tree. What's that? Uh, you've never heard that quote? No, I have. I just I wanted you to detail it for oh, people listening. Yeah. So so the concept is like if you have a classroom, it's really applied towards school, but if you have a classroom of kids and you're teaching them all to climb a tree, but you've got a fish in the room, well, that fish is never going to learn to climb a tree. Um and it's about, you know, you know, creating academic structures that apply to individuals um versus you know, the, the general manufacturing base to support the economy um, in order to achieve maximum impact in life. And I think that's, you know, whatever your maximum impact is, I really think that's what we all try to strive for, right? Is That's happiness. And, you know, sometimes you have to learn that you're a fish and swimming is your best best avenue and be the best swimmer. Don't ever try to climb a tree because you'll, you'll, you'll suffocate. Yeah. Um, so who do we have today? Kimberly Felix. Yeah. Known as Felix to her friends. 
Uh, she's a wellness advocate. She's got a passion for education and accessibility. Before she created her blog, uh, Felix Inside and Out, she worked within the health and wellness space, both in traditional healthcare settings and within the nonprofit boardroom setting. Uh, she's got a passion for advocacy. She's um, ex- got experience with both grassroots organizing and macro scale strategy. So she's like really well, really well balanced. Um, and most recently, after stepping back from her career to focus on her family, she started a blog, which I noted a moment ago. And it's a one stop shop for all things wellness. Uh, I check her out on Instagram a lot. And she is all over the wellness space and she speaks regularly on self-care, diversity, the importance of representation and the delicate nature of raising mixed race, multicultural children in today's world. What do we get into in the episode, Keith? Yeah, I mean, we talk about a lot of things, uh, mom shame and how she feels it and how she's open about it, um, which I just love that part of this conversation. And I love a lot of it. We talk about her raising mixed kids um, as as she's a black woman and her kids represent or present white. Right. And what that experience is like, um, lack of diverse representation in health and wellness and and a lot of other things that go into her background. So I'm super excited to bring bring the the conversation to you and, and you know, some things to take away from it. Rodney, what, what, like what strikes you about this conversation? Yeah, one of the big things is just you'll you'll hear this throughout the conversation, but her identity struggle as she moves through different parts of her life, especially with her relationship with her mother and figuring out who she is and what she wants to be. And then most recently as becoming a, a new mother and the struggles there and trying to figure out what's okay, what society want, what do I want, what's okay, what's not. And then her reinvention of herself and being okay with that. And that, that I thought that was a um, something to, to key into. Um, you got any conversation tips for this one? Yeah, I got two. Um, one is this concept that we talk about a lot is engaging with curiosity. There's a moment in the episode where I actually get uncomfortable because you two are talking about uh, the the prominent all-black sorority, AKAs, and I have no idea who you're talking about. And just just pay attention, like because the way I try to navigate that emotionally, you can't tell, but I decided to overcome it and just ask the question, right? And actually, you know, goes into some dialogue. And then the other thing is, you know, it's all about meeting people where they are in their lives. We often may vilify someone or get mad at someone because they didn't stand up for for what's right. But when she talks about how often she's confused or confused as Latina and that how she now presents it and the how she manages that. Like this is a great representation of the individual experience that we all go through on a daily basis that uh, that needs to allow us to meet people where they are when we're actually having a conversation and may disagree. So um, wh- this is a great conversation. Uh, you can already tell there's there's a lot we go through. So so definitely sit back and enjoy. the realization that he would never be gunned down in the streets because he looks like a suspicious black boy because he doesn't 
he looks like a white boy who lives in a country club community wearing a hoodie. Thought that I couldn't raise them properly if I didn't give them 100% of myself. But if I give you 100% of me, there's nothing left for me and there is most certainly nothing left for my husband. So, um, so I have recently kind of begun reevaluating that. Today we are with Kimberly Felix, or Felix. Felix, how are you today? Hi, doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing very well. Thanks for asking. Um, so off the top, you're you're very much into um, wellness and nutrition, health and wellness, and promoting uh, minority representation in the space. Now, what what do you think leads or contributes to the lack of diverse representation in health and wellness? Um, in the United States or globally? Um, I would have to say, um, first of all, that's a question that I actually get um, asked a lot. And um, I think that it comes down to um, the cultural differences. Um, I think culturally speaking, I mean, if we're going to really dive deep, um, the foods that people, especially in the African-American communities, and then um, in a lot of minority communities, so not just African-American um, you know, especially like Latino American communities in America, it's really steeped in being given the leftovers, being given what's left behind and making the best of that. And so, um, unfortunately, historically speaking, that's not always the best, highest quality, um, foods, but it's the foods that we, we come to know and love. And some of them are great, like collard greens are huge you know, um, in a lot of minority communities. And those are actually filled with tons of nutrients, um, but you can't have just collard greens. And so um, I think food as a cultural thing and wellness as a cultural thing um, is, is, is why it's not hugely diverse. Um, I always liken it back to the yoga community, and I think it's making a huge change. But, you know, 15 years ago, yoga was the 45-year-old step for wife clientele who were coming and paying, you know, $40, $50 for a yoga class. Um, and then in the last five years or so, that has made a huge change where the yoga community has become much more diverse. Um, and I think wellness as a whole is kind of very, very, very slowly moving in that direction. The acknowledgement that wellness is for everyone and, um, and just, really worrying about that accessibility component of it is where we kind of are right now. Do, do you think it's very much tied to economics as well? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Sure. I mean, e even now, I mean, um, I, I feel like a little bit of a unicorn in the wellness space and there are definitely other women of color in, in the wellness space, but we're a very small fraction of it. Um, you know, I think about how much money we spend on our food. Um, you know, a few years ago we made, you know, maybe five years ago, we decided to go like 50% organic, but it's one of these deep holes that you can fall into where the more, you know, the more it's unacceptable for you to kind of 
actively make a choice to eat something that you don't feel is what's best for you. And so I would say we're at the point now where we're at like 90% organic and we try and do local because there are certain things that don't get sprayed with pesticides as much, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And the EWG is a great resource for that. But, um, but our, our, I mean, I would be lying if I said that like our grocery bill wasn't astronomical and absolutely not accessible. And you guys have younger children, but I have a third grade boy who plays competitive Mm. travel sports and he has grown two inches since January and he's not even at his nine year doctor's appointment. And I'm like, you need to stop. So (laughs) you need to, you need to slow down. And so I'm just like, uh, you know, my husband and I, we were driving somewhere today and we saw a family get out and they had a son who is absolutely where my son is going to be, where he was like 13 or 14 and he was like twice the size of his mom. And I was like, he can't eat at our house anymore when he gets that size. He's just gonna, he just can't. Like, I can't feed him when he's I mean, economics, economics and time and education. Oh, like, absolutely. And I education mean, is like a reason, but I feel like it's a third or fourth or fifth because like time and money, like that's. Time and money is everything because fast food, generally speaking, is not going to be as nutritionally dense and it's not going to, um, to, to check all of the boxes of what you need. But if you don't have time and also if you have very little money, you can still fill your child or yourself. You can fill your belly for very little, um, but you're not filling yourself. Um, from a from a food perspective, um, so I think accessibility is huge. Um, it, 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 and it's something that I think about often, and it makes me sad. And I know that I'm very blessed, and I know that I'm very lucky. And um, I actually sometimes think, like, what would we do if we couldn't afford our um, what we what we what we know to be what's best for our family? Um, and a lot of people every day, most of Americans every day have to make that decision or they have to live in this um, ignorance is bliss place because. What else are they going to do? What bothers me about it, though, is the rest of the much of the rest of the world, Canada, lots of Europe. Uh, I'm thinking specifically like Italy, UK, like they look at us and they think we're crazy because. They don't have to label things organic because they just do it right in the first place. Like they just don't spray it with bullshit. And they're like, hmm, maybe if we don't put it on the food, then we don't ingest it. Like, there's a list of chemicals. You probably know this. Have you ever have you ever heard of uh, Think Dirty? Yes. Yes. So I actually I've talked have to the, the app CEO. on my phone. <laughs> I love the app. I have it on my phone, on my iPad. I talked to the uh, CEO a couple times, like, back when it first came out. I'm like, how are there this many chemicals that Canada doesn't allow in the products that the U.S. Like does? It's like a list of, like, 5,000, isn't it? It's growing. Like, it's yeah. growing. I feel like but, last year it was like an even like 3,300 things that are not legally allowed in the UK. And the list for the US was like 36. Yeah. Um, and I know that they are doing a reevaluation of all of that right now. So the numbers might be slightly different. But that's a, that's a significant magnitude, right? <laughs> um, and... To your I, point, yeah. if you know that, now what do you do with that information? Well, so there's a, I'll have to find it later. There's a woman who actually took this information and she challenged Kraft because of the ingredients in macaroni and cheese were, there was one specific one, like uh, it wasn't cancer causing, but had 
really deleterious effects towards anybody that ingested it, specifically children who's which yes. who they marketed to. And she went and she lobbied outside their office until she got a meeting with an exec, and it found out that Kraft uh, Kraft UK actually doesn't use the ingredient. Like absolutely. They know. And mm-hmm. but they used it here because they could, and it costs less, and they could manufacture with it. And it just it pisses me off because I'm like, why do I have to pay for organic when it's just because these companies making there. more money on, on yeah, you're you know? just making more money on my on my purchase yeah. because you want to use that shit. Now, what got you in to the whole health and wellness space? Um, so my I grew up all over. My mother um was in the military. Um, and she's done many, many things outside of that, but, um, she was in the army and, um, she, I knew, like I said, I think I said to you guys before, I knew I wanted to be like in medicine since the time I could say what I wanted to be when I grew up. And so, um, I was pre-med, applied to med school, started, did the whole path. Um, and I actually worked with a nonprofit for many, many years um, that was doing healthcare advocacy. And it was really more about like patient advocacy. It was about advocating for policy change to make treating patients easier because there are so many policies that most people do not realize actually prevent people who want to help you like doctors and uh, EMTs from actually providing you the help. And then also the more, you know, you realize that medicine is really at a reactive place. Um, it's the, how can we fix it once it's broken? And I'm a and certified that's more of an art than a science. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, and I had gotten into yoga and, um, as I was doing this kind of healthcare advocacy, I've lobbied on Hill on Capitol Hill, probably a hundred plus times. I've been arrested on Capitol Hill. Um, I have lobbied and written policy internationally and really the thing that kind of never really came together for me was that the things that I was really, really passionate about were preventative medicine and preventative medicine. And there are a lot of people who practice preventative medicine, but most of the time preventative medicine is things that you can do yourself without a degree. And you know, that in a lot of ways sounds very, very hokey. I feel like, because, you know, I'm not one of these people who um, is anti-science. And I, I tell my husband that my most difficult thing for me is that I am actually in league with a lot of people who are anti-science as soon as you start talking about like taking care of your mind and your body and um and like you know talking about you know you eat these things and make sure your nutrients are just so you start to fall into this gray area where there is a lot of overlap with people who will also be like but don't trust traditional medicine. And I would never say that. And I actually work pretty actively to make sure that people realize I'm not in that camp. Um, but to me, it's the, to the point you were just saying, it's the, like, if you eat good food that actually provides you with nutrients and you eat it in such a way that your body can absorb those nutrients, you can prevent, I think they did a research study recently where it was like 85% of the illnesses that we are currently fighting today. Um, you ask your average primary care physician, can be yeah. prevented by making sure that you have proper care of your body. And so then when you start to say that, you're like, we need to be spending our time and our energy on those things, not just um, fixing it when they come into the doctor's office. It's interesting with the with the whole anti-science association because there is this 
feeling. It's like being a tree hugger, right? Like just because I care for the environment doesn't mean I don't believe that that science is real, right? Um, you you start to get an overcorrection from some people that create a bad name for the for the ecosystem. Exactly. When at the end of the day, it's it, they both can exist. Preventative wellness, taking care of yourself, doing things, exercising, walking, moving around, eating good things, drinking water, not pop, right? Sleep. Like you know, sleeping, doing all of these things that that can help you live a healthier and better life aren't anti-science. They're actually rooted in science. Like there's exactly. a lot of even, science even meditation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's always, um, I always, because there's such a small percentage of our population that actually serves in the military. Um, I, I always, um, find it fascinating to understand what impact, not, not just the moving around, but being in a military family has on an individual. Cause I think it's, we, we easily say, oh, you grew up in the military. So maybe you're disciplined or you, you have all of these qualities that, that have impacted you one way or another. Oh, that makes sense. But I'm curious to get your, your take on how the military family households, uh, like impacted the, the path or paths that you've taken in life. I think, I think you could probably argue for a difference depending on the branch that your parents are in. Um, um, for sure, knowing a lot of military kids myself, but, um, I would say that it's certainly, um, has had an impact on my level of discipline. Um, and some of that comes from the type of parent that I have. Like, um, my mom was a, a career military woman and that says a lot in and of itself. Um, and she, you know, got to a relatively high rank and she had to scrap for it because, I mean, she's a African-American female in the military. Um, so she has taught me a great amount of self-discipline when it comes to um, if you want something, you fight for it. Um, but on the same time, I can be a little bit uh, of a perfectionist and be a bit anal retentive, which, you know, that could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on, on how you look at it. So um, exactly. I mean, it has certainly helped me to uh, more easily outshine some of my peers who do not have that same level of discipline. Um, as I've said before, my personality is, is I'm an executionist. Once I've set a goal, that goal is being accomplished, whether it kills me or not. Um, and so, so far that has been very, very um, beneficial. So on that executionist point, and you mentioned that you knew what you wanted to do since you were five-ish or earlier, and now you're in this health and wellness space, and you told us before the interview that you're kind of evaluating all that. Like, I'm what is that? What is that like? A full-on existential crisis. We could just call it what it is. <laughs> um, so I'm at this place where, because of where I got in my training, there is kind of always this option of going back. It would definitely not be easy. I'm not going to pretend that it would be, but I kind of have kind of rested and clung to the reality that I could go back to that and not really face the reality of whether or not I want to. And um, I think for me, when it comes down to it, it comes down to that piece of my personality that it's like, this is something that I started and I haven't finished. And I'm actually, because of the work that I have done um, with nonprofits, um, healthcare advocacy, lobbying on Capitol Hill, I have a lot of political writing background. Um, I know a lot of doctors who have finished med school, 
practice for a little while and then go and do something completely different because they came to the same decision I'm coming to just after they finished and completed the degree. Um, and so for me, when people ask me what I am and what I do, it like kills me a little bit that like my husband has a PhD. So it's like doctor and Mrs. And I was also someone growing up who was like never going to take my husband's last name. Yeah, I wasn't going to take my children. Like, and so I'm like, have I really become this person who like, obviously I took my husband's last name and I'm like, what, what's the most important thing in your life right now? Oh, my kids. And like, also like I'm a stay at home mom who like goes to soul cycle and practices yoga and like, uh, and I'm like, is this who I am? Um, <laughs> Full on crisis mode. It's an interesting um, position that you're in because you kind of represent that that conflict that you know is is culturally talked about the the working mom the the idea of having everything in your life and you know not necessarily doing that but struggling from an identity perspective like this is the person I always thought I was going to be now I am this person you ask yourself that question is this really the person I am. Like, Does that come it, from like how you grew? You had, earlier you had intimated to us specifically that you're not a big fan of your father, and then your mom like reaches high rank fighting <laughs> for it. Like, is it because of that? Like, see, seeing yeah. her and her success, and, and like it's like, oh, I want to emulate or be that. Because like, uh, there's almost like a, a, a I don't want to call it a shame. Oh but, no, there's uh, shame, shame. Yeah, shame. we can use that yeah. word. We can okay, call it because cool. they, they <laughs> name it like shame that you know. And and I and I love that you're open about it because I know you're not the only person that feels this way, especially uh, women who want to be personally successful and end up getting married and having kids, right? Like, what's this like, and how how is this playing out for you right now? And to Rodney's question about your dad and your mom, military. This is like therapy, you guys. That's what we do. So there is a couple of things that you said there, and I think that they all play a role. Um, for first of all, my mother it was and is a force to be reckoned with, and we don't even have like the best relationship in the world because I think, and I think about this from the perspective, I think that a lot of women who have to forsake everything else for their career, it's very, very difficult to be incredibly nurturing as a mother, and I mean. I've watched enough daytime TV <laughs> or, or, or I've watched Grey's Anatomy. Okay. Like I've watched enough <laughs> and I know enough people who have very powerful mothers to know that something is lost. There's only there. and so it, much energy. I, Real quick question. Does it stop with mothers? I mean, cause like dads that are super powerful, like execs, like are they as connected? No. Okay. So it does not stop, stop with mothers. I think fathers are the same. But I think culturally speaking, you expect a mother to be nurturing and you expect it's socially acceptable for a father to just be there for the highlight reel of your life. Yeah, that social that social impact impacts women far more than it does men. Like and it's almost reverse. Like I uh, used to want to be a CEO and wanted had all these career aspirations. And then I had my daughter. Now I'm fine. Like, I'm fine just being an individual contributor, but it's like I'm supposed to be ambitious and I'm supposed to be doing this. And I'm supposed, you know, so I I get that, you know, there's that social pressure, but in a whole different scale for you. And so 
for for me, um, relationships obviously have a different uh, impact in someone's life who is singularly focused on their career. And I always thought that I was going to be the same. And I tell people this story, like I did not think I was going to like being a mother. I was like, probably eventually, maybe I'll have kids and I'll have a nanny and I will plan beautiful birthday parties and take excellent holiday photos and like do the like brunch and gift momming, not the like in the trenches, making you a good human kind of momming. And there is a shame because I always thought of women who get married and let their husbands take care of them. And you can imagine how this goes over in my marriage with my husband, who's an Italian man who wants to take care of his woman. <laughs> like I always thought that those women were not real women. I, I did. And I know that's not true now, but it's the like, I thought that they were like at home eating bonbons and like not doing anything. And I wanted to do something and I wanted to make an impact in the world. And I wanted to be powerful and, and respected in my own right. And I mean, if you really wanted to go into therapy, there's probably a whole lot of, you know, underpinnings of uh, trying to figure out where my power lies and always attributing it to these external factors. Like what are the, the letters behind your name? What a, you know, how do you garner respect when you walk in a room without having to open your mouth? And um, men can do that very easily, right? You know, you throw on a three-piece suit and then a tie. And when you walk in the room, even if you're the janitor, people assume that you are important. And um, with women, I feel like we have to have badges on that say, hey, 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 guess what? I'm important. And one of the ways that you can do that as a woman is having letters behind your name. I have a friend whose name I will not use, but um, she literally has um, a master's, a master's of public health, a JD and an MD. This woman is a force to be reckoned with. And she still worries when she walks into the room, whether people will take her, um, you know, seriously, which is absurd. If there was a man who had all of those letters behind his name, people, the, the, the doors would open. Um, the doors would open when you walk. <laughs> but, but to your point a moment ago, it's, it's, it's probably has something to do with the internal, like the in, oh, intrinsic, extrinsic. Cause like, I, I would posit that like, though a man could throw in a three piece suit and walk in a room and seem like a boss, like you still have issues with, with, you know, self-confidence and all the other kind of stuff underneath the suit and but from a your to your point from a societal from a cultural point of view like men will get a they'll get a, a pass much quicker like they walk in it's like oh okay like yesterday I, w I read this really good article on unconscious bias and it had me thinking this thing happens that annoys the shit out of me every time my wife and I are talking to any kind of professional car salesman uh, could be we had an electrician here earlier any Anytime we're talking to them, 95% of the eye contact and conversation is directed at me. Oh, absolutely. That's like she's not there. For me, there is a lot of, I feel like I'm like, uh, part of this goes back to that vanity thing that I was telling you about earlier. Like I was a rising, a rising star. Um, and, you know, not to top myself on the back, but I, 
my husband always says this to me. He's like, it's, it's actually kind of a shame that where we were when we had our child was it made more sense for you to take a step back than me. He's like, because between the two of us, if we were just going on raw potential, like, you the sky is literally the limit for you um and for me he's like i'm just like every day like hey i'm here i'm out here i'm doing it um and so you know i i appreciate that because that helps to build my self-esteem up and that's what a good husband does but it's this kind of like i knew that i was going to be a force to be reckoned with and then it's like am i like what happened and i asked my husband yesterday um, because this really amazing job opportunity kind of fell in front of my lap and it's like the dream and it's like in the dream city and it's like doing really important work and making a lot of money doing really important work. But where my husband is in his career, like we're back where we were eight years ago where it's like, well, if we were to, if I were to pursue this, we would have to live separately for a small period of time as we transition our unit to being able to make that work because it's not here where we are locally and it's not where his company is headquartered on the West Coast, which is where we came from. So I used to be someone who, the reason I always was able to accomplish everything I set my mind out to do, which was a lot of really great things at a young age. Um, I was representing the United States Medical Student Association internationally as their liaison before I was 25. Um, I, I, and I, step into a room of thousands of international people and command silence for something that I wrote and explaining it, et cetera. And so that's a, there's a lot of power there that I relinquished, um, which as you can see, may not have been the easiest thing for me to do in the world. And, <laughs> but I, some point turned from this person who the reason I could accomplish so many things was because I didn't give a damn about nobody else. Like, and I was engaged before my husband. And the reason, and I always tell people, like, God laughs at me daily. The reason I called off our wedding is because he wanted me to be a stay-at-home. I mean, like, we were like, we dated for years. Like, you knew this was not going to be the case. But he wanted me to be at home with kids while he did his thing. And I was like, um, hello, <laughs> Felix, have we met? And like, this was like after we engaged, like planning a wedding, I called it off, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, I meet my husband sometime later, we get married, that he would never have asked that of me. And that's where I ended up. Yeah. Um, realizing that like, if I continue to only make decisions based on what was best for me to um, move myself forward, I would be at the top all by my damn lonesome. And I am a very difficult woman to A, love and B, be married to. Um, and I'm well aware of this. Um, I have lots of quirks. So, you know, when you have someone who's your friend and my husband was my friend for a very long time and then we started dating and then we got married, you have someone who's like, you know what? I could put up with you for forever. You really do have to start asking yourself, okay, like, like how many people are going to be willing to put up with me if I keep up this behavior of that's all well and good as long as you're able to put up with me on my terms that progress me forward and we ended up being in a position where the choice was single parent or as I like to say solo parent because I'm I was never going to be a single parent but solo parent um because single mothers do a whole different thing from from solo parenting um solo parent for like while trying to progress my career so that my husband could be somewhere else or make the choice that I needed to take a step back so that our family as a unit would have what was best for our family. And I would make the choice a hundred times over. I would probably 
after a couple of glasses of wine, regret the choice at least 60, 60 of those hundred times that I made it. But I know that where we are today are because of my flexibility. And my husband tells me that. He says, you know, I would have never been able to be where I am in my career. Like he has really become a prodigy within his field because he hasn't had to worry about is my wife at home resenting me or is, you know, can my family not do this? I mean, we, like I said, we moved several times so that he can make these next jumps to promotions that just presented themselves. And we often say, even if we hadn't made that first thing work and we were in the same place and I was progressing my career, medicine is transient, but it's not that transient. If you are a resident, you can't just be like, Oh, my husband's moving to LA for this major promotion. I'm going to move too. So one decision, it, it predicated a whole level of flexibility that has allowed my husband to um, move in a way and be very nimble with his career. And my career hasn't gone anywhere. And that's the existential crisis. It's that my career hasn't gone anywhere. It's, is it still what I want? Or do I only want it because I want us to be doctor and doctor? Well, this is the thing I think that's amazing about what you do, right? Because this is not a, a unique struggle of family versus career, or balancing both or however. It's it's how open you are about the to, yeah. emotional struggle with it. I think it's interesting, the the social expectations in in all of what you've talked about. First, parenting is yeah. probably the hardest job any of us have. And it's different for everybody. It's how we grew up. It's how we were raised and how we're ultimately looking to bring a child into this world and, and make them a contributing member of, of society. Yet, hell, like respect to moms. Mom should be the letters at the end of the name, not PhD, not MD. Like those, those three letters, I'm not saying the other ones are bad, but like, if if your title and your signature and your email, you know, said Kimberly Felix, mom, but yes. society yeah. doesn't look at it that way. And it creates this, this ecosystem, right? Where, you know, there's so much pressure. I want to do all of these things. This isn't what I thought I wanted to do, but I don't know. I want to take a little bit a of a left turn. Yeah, please. Um, you grew up as an interracial child mm-hmm. and you mentioned earlier your mom being African-American and high achieving in the military and, and, and overcoming some challenges. Like have, what kind of challenges have you overcome? You know, it's such a funny thing because obviously hindsight is twenty twenty, And, um, it, we talked a little bit before the podcast about like woke being woke. And <laughs> if you knew me or if you knew me, 15 years ago, you would not have thought I was woke. I was, okay, so my Mm. mom used to call me um, Tinkerbell, and um, I had friends who also called me a delicate flower, and um, part of that had to do with my stature. I was, like, when I was in, I've grown since, I was a competitive gymnast, I've grown since um, graduating from from college, but I was, um, like, 4'11", 5 feet tall, like 100 pounds soaking wet. So that had something to do with it. But, but another part of it was my mom used to be, be like, I don't know how you could be so smart, but so ditzy and so unaware. And um, and so I, you know, I, 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 oh, the, I was literally a snowflake. And not in the, like, cool way that we talk about it now. Like, in the, like, I'm pretty sure other 
black people just shook their head when I walked into the room. Just like, oh, she's so, she's just so unaware. And like, I grew up in an upper middle class family. I, my husband always is like, if I wrote like your life down on paper and didn't put a color attached to it, people's jaws would drop to the floor when they were like, wait, she's black. Um, and so, but I was, you don't know what you don't know. And, um, I was, you know, I was a sorority girl. I was in a white sororities whose colors were pink and green that looked like me. AKA. So I was, so, so I can't wear pink and green and people not raise the question. Pink and then figure. I have to be like, I'm just going to start telling people that I was, I have been given the honorary ability to do so. Let me just say that's an aside, but anyway. Yeah. I, yeah, I have no idea what this pink and green has. AKAs, the pink and green. It's like the premier sorority for african-american women and all of to look like me yeah. <laughs> they used to there's a lot of racial intercultural stuff there but um but so i was just i'll give so you a copy of school days and we'll start there well i'm so confused by this pink and green i think it for even for our audience's benefit like i mean i don't know how we need to go that deep but so like, the, this is, this is an interesting it, topic of conversation. So the gist of it is, is AKAs, their colors. So all sororities and fraternities have like their colors and pink and green is the color of AKAs, which as he was pointing out is like the premier, I mean, a, a lot of sorors would fight you on this, but sure. generally speaking, when you're from the outside looking in and you think of like premier Afri traditionally African-American sororities, AKAs um, are what you think of. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I was in um, Del I'm Delta Zeta. And Delta Zeta oh, is, uh, is a white sorority mm -hmm. um, that's colors also happen to be pink and green. Uh... So I was one of these people because I didn't have, because I was so unwoke, I actually joined a sorority based on who my friends were joining. What? And not based on, yes, not based on the what it would do for me as an adult because a lot of people think oh sororities and fraternities are all about when you're an undergraduate and like living it up but really I, what i will tell my children is that i think you should join a fraternity or a sorority but it's really about the connections that you want when you're an adult because you're mm -hmm. only an undergrad for four to five you know years seven <laughs> so, <laughs> changes but you're gonna be an adult who's gonna want that connection and that camaraderie for forever so as you might imagine most of my friends are aka's and it's kind of a running joke that i can still wear pink and green with them without it being a lie but i can never wear pink and green without people assuming i'm an aka because i'm a light-skinned black woman who's wearing pink and green and who was in a sorority. So it's not just like a happenstance pink and green. It's like, these are my sorority colors. And it's not okay. <laughs> so that's an aside. But um, needless to say, I think that is actually a perfect example of how unwoke I was. Like, I didn't have a black mentor steering me being like, mm, maybe you should rethink this life decision. For, you know, and, and I just, that's how I lived my life. Like, everybody got like a BMW when they turned 16. Everybody. What? everybody was doing these things right and I worked in a free clinic um when I was like 21 years old and the one that I got assigned to was in an underserved community because duh and um I was also doing like some helping them with like some Spanish translation and I helped them create a program because they have they had a high uh probability of people with diabetes because duh and um oh, wait wait there's two because does the first one 
I think I get the second one. I definitely get. Let's let's go into those real quick. Okay, there's people so, that probably won't pick up on this. Okay, so I was the working clinic. at a free clinic, and the yeah. free clinic that I was assigned to um, was in an underserved community because the people who are giving their kids BMWs at 16 don't need a free clinic. They go for regular healthcare, um, and um, that was all well and good. And then the they had a high epidemic of diabetes at this particular clinic because it was in an underserved community. So you're looking at black and brown communities of people who traditionally had high diabetes, high blood pressure. Um, and a Which lot of ties directly back into the first so thing he wellness. asked about nutrition and wellness and education. And, and this is actually how I kind of, the first nugget of me waking up and also the first nugget of me maybe already thinking about non-traditional pathways to medicine and healthcare, because we were having this issue and what happened was is we would come in and we would do this little diabetes training we'd be like hey you have diabetes here are some slides and the people would be like oh okay not because english was not their first language a lot of our people that we came in um because of the particular community that i was in it was actually more heavily brown than black and um and then they would go and then they would come back you know for their checkups and things like that and nothing would change and so one day i was like what are you eating and they would tell you all the things you already knew the answer to, traditional foods that they were eating, which were either not helping their diabetes or absolutely hurting their blood pressure numbers. And so I helped to create a program where we actually would bring their children in because their children were all in school. And we would talk with them with their children who, when they were at home, could kind of translate this information um, in a practical way. And also the second part of the program was that we would give them a food stipend, which we had to write grants for, and we got grants to give them a food stipend on the condition that we took them on a grocery shopping field trip. We would take them to, they would go through, and we would walk them through because what we found out was one of the most elementary things was that these people were still buying the traditional foods that they're used to buying. And so you couldn't just give them a recipe and say, maybe don't eat what you normally eat because it's steeped in culture. And so taking them and saying, hey, you normally buy this. This is an excellent alternative. Let's put it in the cart. Now, on the one hand, they have tweaked the system because um, it was a good start. But you can't just be like, I'm only going to give you this $100 for food if you buy exactly what I tell you to buy. But it was um, part of the field trip was that we walked them through and we filled the cart with $100 worth of things that were healthy alternatives for them to make the same dishes in a slightly healthier way. And then at the end, it was, you can use this money, you can buy what's in this cart, or you can put everything back and you can use the money for what you want. But what's in this cart is going to help you live longer, be healthier, and be around for your children that you brought to America because of the community that I was in to give them a better life. But would their life be better if you weren't in it? And it had a huge impact on that particular free clinics um, numbers for diabetes over time. I mean, this has been, oh my God, I'm still like 15 years. This has been a really, uh, 10, 10, 12 years. This has been a really long time, but I continue to check in with that free clinic. And for me, it was this free clinic in this community was a half an hour from my house. And I was like, where are we? And they're like, girl, what are you, this is like, you just go that way for like 25 minutes and I make it up and you're at your house. And I was, my mind was blown because we raise our children and we grow up in a bubble. You can't see it, but I'm making a bubble. <laughs> and so it was I, a good bubble. It was I, a strong I, I bubble. 
no idea that like this whole freaking community because I'm like but I live on the rich side of town like where are these people living and they were like 30 minutes from your house they don't come to your Whole Foods or they don't come to your mall but they're 30 minutes away from you and so I was like I could not believe, and my mom was like, why do you think we told you not to go over there? And I'm like, because I don't know, because you didn't want me using all your gas. Like I had, was so unwoke. And then on top of that, I had this realization that like, I could have a real impact on these people, people's lives by just changing the way that you presented the information. Because frankly, it's so steeped in culture. You have to find something stronger than culture and for them the thing that was stronger than culture was a lot of these people were immigrants and um, at my particular free clinic and this wouldn't work everywhere but they came there to give their children a better life and I'm like when we chop off your foot and then you die is that going to be better for your kid and you know maybe it's an unconventional way of saying things but um but a lot of them, it resonated for them. And some people, it didn't. Like, they would come in and they would say, well, mom and dad have changed their diet, but grandma is like, mm -mm, I'm not eating that. And that's the whole next, that's that's like a what's next kind of question. Um, but for me, to your original question of what kind of challenges I had, I think I've gotten so lucky because most of the challenges that I probably had I was so privileged and oblivious that I didn't even realize them. So you when just kept, I thought, you just kept moving through them. I just, I just kept on moving, and people were probably laughing at me in the corner. I'm gonna tell you, in hindsight, there's a reason I didn't have very many black and brown friends when I was younger. Um, and it wasn't them; it was me, <laughs> and I will own that. Um, but um, I would say once I got to the point where I was operating, you know, as a person who worked with this organization regionally, and then I became a national leader on their board of trustees. And I did that for several years. And then I became an international liaison for them. Um, by that point, I had woken up because at that point, I started lobbying on Capitol Hill. And a lot of the issues that we were lobbying on, I was just like, why are the why are we having to write? This is not a law already. And they were like, no, it works for you because you have healthcare, because you have money, because you have never had doors slammed in your face or not had had access to these things. But here's the percentages of the people who don't have access to these things. And it woke me up very quickly um, because I think that naturally I'm an empath. And I all of a sudden I was just like, I don't understand why we're having to lobby on this, because why is this not already like, why is this not already locked down? Like, from a governmental's perspective, like, it just makes sense. Um, and, like, I would never have come out of my mouth and said that I had privilege that was afforded to me because of my socioeconomic status. And because, you know, generally speaking, I'm a light-skinned female. And interestingly enough, I've done a lot of work in Latin American countries. And um, and whenever I've lived or or been to New York... I have never not been mistaken for a Latino, which is so crazy to me because I'm like, I don't, I don't look, in my opinion, I don't look Latina. But you could uh, ask. Here's the thing. I get mistaken for Latinas, for a Latina, by Latino people. So it's not even just like white guy who can't tell the difference between, yeah, you know, any brown person looks the same. Yeah, yeah. It's legitimately like Abuela coming up to me and being like, look, let's talk in Spanish and let me ask you all these questions. And then like, where are your people? And I'm like, 
they not my. You know what? Let me just answer your question. For you know, for a really long time, I tried to correct people. <laughs> Let me just answer your question. I would try and correct people because I felt like I don't want you to think that I'm like trying to deceive you. And then you realize that you've had a thirty minute question, a thirty minute response with somebody who needed a two minute answer because mm. you're trying too hard to make sure that you're not like lying. I don't know. It's a very weird experience, and I would have never said that I experienced privilege because of being a light-skinned black woman and I would have probably naively even said you know I felt like the people and I've had this conversation with many people before where I would have said you know the people who I felt discriminated against me and I'm using air quotes were other African Americans and um, I really struggled with that and part of that was because they were giving me the side eye because I was so oblivious but um but realized that, and I wasn't owning that. Like you have it, it, and it, it's so you know. I realize that it's not exactly the same thing. And my husband and I have this conversation. We obviously have the conversation about white privilege in our family. Um, but even within the African American culture, I think that it's really important for women who look like me or men who look like me to acknowledge that you are going to be slightly more privileged than someone who is darker skinned because of how our country operates. The, the world, the, world the darker you are around the world, because there are Pakistanis, there are Indians, darker it, than, like, it's look. A global, it's certainly a global issue of whiteness being associated with beauty and with, as my mom says, <laughs> if it's white, it's right. Like, that is, like, <laughs> It's, that's the default that's, though hey default hey. whiteness keith remember uh we had a, a hollywood writer on and he's like writers if writers don't write in a specific character that includes race and skin color and facial features like the default is oh we'll bring a white guy in. we'll bring a white like default whiteness is it, and it well it's, it's funny because you're telling that story about the like the, the first thing that popped into my head when you were telling the story about um, the Latina woman who approached you and it thought you were you know, <laughs> light, light skinned, right? I don't get anything like that. People approach they me to ask me wife. for directions because they know, <laughs> like, I am the default. Like, yeah. I represent the default. So as I walk through life, no one's suspicious of me. No one worries about me. No, no People may think I'm younger than I am, but that's the extent of it. So... And so the first thing that I thought into my head, I'm like, man, I've never experienced anything like that. I had some right? things that like, something that you're not. Like, I'm gonna, yeah, exactly. Like I'm there's the a, I, I am the default setting on your TV. Bringing it back to, to children, I have had the most existential situation with my sons because I look at my children and I think, you are black men. You will grow up to be black men. But I've had at least two instances in my life where I realized that I couldn't approach them in that way. And it was important that I didn't approach them in that way for the sake of the people that they will hang out with. And two of those instances were my son is real into hoodies because he's in the third grade. And I talked to my husband about the fact that I almost felt bad when I had the realization that he would never be gunned down in the streets because he looked like a suspicious black boy because he doesn't. 
he looks like a white boy who lives in a country club community wearing a hoodie. And that whiteness, that proximity will like to whiteness will save his life, can save his life. And that's very difficult for me because talking to my children about their blackness is really important to me. But this is, they live in a world where the first impression, like I am never not confused for a Latina, they will, much to my chagrin, never not be mistaken for white boys. Never not be mistaken for, and so it's an interesting place to be in a parenting situation. And then the second thing is my son, he used to only hang out with white kids, but in the last few years, he started to really hang out with a lot of black boys. And he actually hangs out with a lot of mixed race black boys, coincidentally, but they all look like we thought our kids were going to look like they're mixed race. And you might be like, mm, something, something's happening there, but you know that they're black boys and they were doing something. And one of the boys did something that he wasn't supposed to do. And my son, son is telling me this story and they like decided to like take off or something like that. And I had to have a conversation with my son that you can make choices that your black male, your black looking male friends cannot do. And you need to think about them because there is this conversation that I think white parents need to have with their kids is how do you keep your black friends safe? Because they don't have the privilege that you have to walk away from an altercation, potentially with police or potentially with, um, you know, someone who is up to no good safely. And so you have to make decisions that might not end in death for you, but could very possibly end in death for them. And it was the weirdest conversation I've ever had to have with my kid because at the same time, I'm like, look, you black, like you can't be acting like that. But in my like black mom voice that turns on every so often. But then at the same time, I'm like, but we also need to talk about that privilege that just by the fact that most people look at you and are going to think that you're white, you have a privilege that your black friends will not have. And they will always have a safe space in my home, but that's not true of the world that they go out into. And so I have been forced to have this like really weird set of conversations, but then also recognize the privilege that I have been able to punt a lot of difficult racial conversations because they will not directly affect my children just yet. Like, and my husband and I have this conversation all the time because we talk about white privilege and we talk about like how white parents of white kids don't have to have these conversations until their children are a little bit older and then you can kind of talk about it. Whereas black parents are telling their four and five. I'm no, sorry. I mean, I never had a conversation about race. You think I so? Mean, no, I, I, I would. Now, now, woke oh, white right, parents right. having oh. conversations, oh, oh, oh. but they get to choose to have them when it's like, they get to choose when it's necessary, when it's de developmentally appropriate, whether they want to or not. Oh, absolutely. And then you have the people who have a black parents of black kids and they're like, you five, we need to talk to you about what you do and how you, you know, there's all of these memes and these videos online about black parents talking about the conversations that they have to have with their kids as young as four and five. And I feel terrible sometimes that because of our unique genetic makeup and we just made these carbon copy like white passing kids that like i get to choose um and um i was telling somebody yesterday it's really if you want to be a parent who prepares your child for the world that they're actually entering and not the world you wish they were entering 
it's hard and it can be scary and, um, and it can make you sad. And because kids, I think are really naturally intuitive. And so I have conversations. I had conversations about this election with my son and his midterms and the Florida and the Georgia races, which were huge. And when I talked to him about some of the really awesome groundbreaking things that happened, like the Houston justices where it's like 19 African-American women elected to their court system, which is like historic. Can you believe the like, first two Native Americans were voted into Congress? In this exactly. video, the first two Native Americans. When I tell him this stuff, he's just like, but I don't understand. Like, he, in a very pure, I don't understand how the world works way, his response is just like, why is this like a novel thing? Like, why is this just not like how life works? This, you've said it a few times about your son. Um, he's very white presenting mixed race and the importance and the difference between the culture and the presentation. Oh, absolutely. Right? Because he's going to experience a very different life in the in the black diaspora of of um, people because at the end of the day he's white presenting, but he's rooted in the black culture or in your culture, so he's going to have to navigate and, and well, work through that, right? And how that ultimately presents, like, and this kind of goes back to that whole you know, having this conversation and the importance of getting to know people's experiences and what they go through and being open to understanding that it's real because it's not about how, like, how you're treated is based on how you look, but not based on the culture and the richness of your upbringing and from where you came and all of the things that, that root you as the individual you are. And they're two very different things. And like your son is somebody that we don't see, think about often because, oh, he's, 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 he's the default, even though he's not yeah. right. It, it, and it's, um, it's a couple of years ago, we were having the conversation about identification. Um, and if you aren't familiar, there's a whole lot of identity politics around just being interracial as it is. Mm -hmm. uh, so whether or not you are there, there used to be this idea that if you were a black person who was interracial and you felt the need to inform people or identify as biracial or mixed, then you were somehow trying to distance yourself from your blackness. And I think that there has been a whole movement around just letting people freaking be who they are. But that, that's the, that is very much what I grew up in is if you wanted to even part your lips to tell people that you were mixed, then you were really do like, clearly we can see that you're something. So if you feel the need to say it, then what you're really trying to do is distance yourself from blackness. And, um, I never thought about that. I was just being like, no, I want to claim all my peoples. But, you know, that's just not the way that the culture around it works. And to be very clear, it's steeped in the culture of being mixed was not a good thing. Being, you know, the original right. culture. To, e to either group. To, to either, either group. group because yeah. and, and, and I say that, I say that not just white, black. I'm talking like anybody. Asian and anybody. like, like <laughs> pick the group. Like it's, it's, it's impure, right? And to give you an example, like my, uh, my uh, husband's, my mother-in-law, like her family felt some type of way about her 
dating someone who wasn't Italian. Like, Mm -hmm. it didn't even matter that they were like another white person. He's Polish. It was an issue. Um, And so I grew up kind of feeling like shit anytime someone would point out to me that like, maybe you should just say you're black. Like, maybe we could just, we could scrap the mix thing. And then we got to my son and we were talking about like how he wanted to identify. And this came up a few years ago. And and it was one of these things where I didn't want to tell another person how they should identify. But at the same time, like a little part of me would die inside if he chose to identify as white. Because when I am not with my child, people don't know that he has a black mother at home. And so there was this issue of erasure. It's the, and I think that really culturally it Erasure of you and, yes. the, and that cultural side and, of things. And so I felt like people are never going to not, and then I definitely would not have this conversation with my child, obviously, but like between my husband, I'm like, people are never going to look at my kid and not know that you exist, right? They are going to know that your father exists mm. the second they look at your face, whether he's there or not. But if you don't tell them that I exist, they will never see it. And the crazy thing about it is, is some people cease to see me existing, even when I'm standing there right next to him, which God, again, is constantly laughing at my family because my children, it looks like they took carbon copies of my face and placed it on their faces. They did not get any melanin from me, um, but they got my eyes and they got most of the major face features. Like if you see us sitting next to each other and you still fail to realize that they're my children, you're not looking. You're only seeing the color of their skin. But I really kind of and I was like, this is clearly an issue that I need to deal with. And it's a cultural thing. And I'm struggling with being erased if he chooses to identify as white. But in a world where being white has so many privileges, am I really doing my child a disservice? By not letting him just check that box. Do you and think so he would be? A, I'm sorry. I'm gonna, do you think he would be allowed to identify as black by black culture? See, this is where it becomes difficult. Obviously, biracial is the most multiracial is the most accurate thing to call yourself. Mm. But that's just not how we. That's not how we interact with people in the world. It's like, mm-hmm. yo, yo. Like, just make it easy for me. You, why are you black? Like, tell me. What, what are you? Mm-hmm. And so. It's been a kind of interesting thing because on the one hand, I don't want to guide his hand because I think that there's something really pure about letting him come to that choice on his own. But at the same time, I'm like, but you know, if you choose white, you're going to be wrong, right? (laughs) (laughs) For me, having an interracial relationship and a mixed child, like this is super important. Regardless for me, it would be important because my child is probably going to be brown. And like, look, I said the same thing. Well, she is, she but is like, yeah. in this case, but like, like it's front and center. So like, I don't have a choice in my case. Mm-hmm. I don't have a choice. And then it's like, I think even if I didn't have a choice because of my personality, I would feel like I didn't have a choice because it comes down to like the honesty of the situation. Like what is happening in the world? Like people, you can't like, I, I couldn't, I wouldn't, when people say, like, oh, no, but we're colorblind. We don't see that. Like, like there's the basic lack of integrity in that statement. Oh, absolutely. Bothers me. And, like, a lot of things that we say to children, like, bother me. And, (laughs) like, and my, and I, and I, I feel my goal as a parent is to equip this little person or these little people to 
be able to navigate the world. And if I tell them, if I start with something so seemingly innocuous, but really insidious as we, we're colorblind, like how would I be really preparing them to navigate the world? You wouldn't be. Right. You wouldn't be. And so it, it leads to this interesting question. Like when you talk about his white experience, um, what has it been? Especially, I mean, I mean, you live in a country club community. <laughs> um, you're a black mom with a white white son. Like, what's that social experience been for you? So, generally speaking, I it's I only think about it when. Because at the end of the day, like he's my kid and I treat him mm -hmm. like I would treat my kid no matter what they look like. And as I've said this before, I look at my children and I see black kids. I'm like, these are my little. Oh, totally. Yeah, so I'm like, you, but, but if you're walking him down the street, you've got him in a stroller. He's a young age. It, it has, like, it, it never fails um, that someone doesn't think that I'm his mother. And it happened. Do people think you're uh, the help? Oh, I've been called the help. I've been asked about, you know, I thought we had gone a real good stint of it not coming up. Um, but we were actually at a, um, at a farm and, um, someone did the thing where my sons were running around and my daughter was running around and my daughter was actually running after, um, my husband. And <laughs> I kind of did the like sneak up and scoop her up thing. And a family asked me, um, is she with you? And it took everything in my soul, everything, not because I've gotten to the place in my life where I don't feel like I need to cuss people out because it's like, did, did she look like she's screaming bloody murder? Now, granted, I realize children are abducted. This is a serious thing, blah, 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 blah. But again, my daughter, first of all, my daughter has like a little bit of like a little bit of that olive undertone. I'm like real, real optimistic that maybe with some sun, she might have some <laughs> real color. Optimistic. She might develop the melon. <laughs> <laughs> but um but like at the end of the day her face is a carbon copy of mine yeah. and so it's just this thing where it like it does it breaks my heart when people think i'm stealing my own child or like when i have been called when, when i've been like, called i i could, might go off on somebody i i used to when you think about it culturally and this is important like this is it's so important like if if um rodney's wife walking down the street with their daughter no one's going to ask her if she's the mother of that child actually people won't ask me because i'm a black man they look at me they give me oh, yeah. they right. won't they, say anything to me. they won't say anything to you yeah, yeah. but I, scared. like yeah. If, if you're <laughs> which i'm not i'm, yeah. I'm the yeah. least not scary of black yeah. men you will ever meet but exactly. if you're if you're walk if your husband's walking down the street and let's say your son had melanin or uh, some more melanin he wouldn't get questioned. Oh, no, they absolutely. Wouldn't be like, like he married a right? black woman. Right, exactly. <laughs> right? And and I think, yeah. It's an interesting place to be because I have, even though I say it doesn't bother me, I have absolutely changed the way I move in the world because I'll give you an example. Now, as a part of our process, we make sure that when we move to a new place or when my child starts a new grade, that his new that I make an appearance with him at the school or with the teacher because usually we would do it and like my husband would do it. And then it would be like, okay, white dad, white looking kid, moving on throughout our life as if 
this is a child who is white. And then three months into the school year, when I finally make it into, you know, the class to do something, it's very much a look of, huh, that's not what I expected. So now we, we change our whole process. Like you've primed the pump, which, (laughs) which is a whole nother conversation. I feel like I do this in board meetings. I feel like I do this in just walking around my office. Like, making sure my badge is visible so people know that I, but like when we go up to Seattle, like just to make sure, yeah, like I'm not just a dude roaming through the halls randomly. Uh, So Felix, thank you for coming on. This has been, we've got, we've gone a lot of places and I'm looking at my note list here and I'm like, we didn't touch on that, 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 (laughs) um, I like, but we did touch on a lot of the undertones and a lot of the themes that oh, I hope to. So it's been amazing. So thank you. Thank you. Is there anything uh, that you would leave our audience with as we close up? Um, <laughs> I don't know. We've talked about so many things. I mean, I think that, you know, when we're talking about wellness, that's the whole uh, other conversation. Take care of yourself. One of the things that I had to reteach myself in the last few years um, is that, you know, you can't fill from an empty cup. And that that goes back to from a mental perspective, from a physical perspective, um, uh, you know, making sure that you can I identify the areas where you need to refill before you continue to fill in other people. And that's from a human perspective, but then also just from a parenting perspective. Um, it's hard raising tiny people. And, um, and I, for a very long time thought that I couldn't raise them properly if I didn't give them 100% of myself. But if I give you 100% of me, there's nothing left for me. And there is most certainly nothing left for my husband. So, um, so I have recently kind of begun reevaluating that. And so I think that if you're motherhood, I think is an act of activism. Someone just told me that recently. And it resonated with me so deeply. Um, at my core, I'm an activist, and I really believe in the importance of wellness, but I wasn't interweaving those into my motherhood experience. So for moms, I'm giving you permission to take care of yourself first, and then take care of your children. And for non-moms, um, if you're um, any type of caretaker of other human beings, whether they belong to you or not, you gotta, you gotta take care of yourself. And- Fill your cup with healthy, nutritious things.